fantastic to see all of you. We are starting a new series today called The Power of Dad. Whenever you do a series of sermons about a life stage, a specific um, gender group or stage of life, you run the risk of alienating everyone who doesn't qualify. Um, and so we run a double risk when we do a series on fatherhood because most of you, by a fairly wide majority, are not fathers. Um, half of you are female, and less than half of the males in our congregation are fathers. So statistically speaking, it's a pretty insignificant group uh, of the whole when we talk about fathers in the room. And so why uh, spend three weeks talking about something that doesn't apply to most of the congregation. You might say, well, we're not all fathers, but we all have fathers. And that's true, um, and that's useful, except for the fact that I'd guess, this is total unscientific guesstimate here, that half of us have difficult relationships with our fathers, strained relationships with our dads, um, thinking about dad or a lack of a father might evoke more pain than good thoughts. For many of you, Father's Day is not something to celebrate. And I got emails from many of you who shared some of your stories about growing up without a father. Or maybe you had a father, um, but he wasn't present. Maybe he was there, but he wasn't there. You know what I mean? And so Father's Day is not something you look forward to. You see other people happy with their dads and buying Hallmark cards and doing all the things you do on Father's Day. Um, and for you, it's just, it's empty. Or it's negative. There's a lot of grief, a lot, a lot of anxiety um, and, and pain around Father's Day. Some of you were hurt by your dads or abandoned by your dads. And so why spend three weeks on a painful, provocative subject like fatherhood? in worship. Well, there's two reasons that I, I want to share with you that we're doing this series on fatherhood. And the first is very simple. It's that fathers matter. Fatherhood matters, which should go without saying, except it doesn't. If we don't say it, we forget it. And the importance of fathers and fatherhood has been largely forsaken by the world around us especially when compared to the importance of mothers and motherhood. So my, my contention is that fathers and fatherhood should be every bit as revered and respected as mothers and motherhood are. And so I want to talk about why that matters and why that is um, throughout this series because, unfortunately, that has not been the case. In our culture, moms have typically been celebrated. Motherhood has typically been championed, and rightfully so. But... The other side of that coin is that dads have simultaneously been largely ignored. Even by scientists, social scientists, which we would expect more objectivity from. Scientists study mothers nine or ten times more frequently than they study fathers in, time, in terms of how, what kind of impact they have on kids. Oftentimes in the studies that have been done on infant development and toddler development, the, the scientists will make their lab notes as they observe the child and his or her reaction to the mother. And whenever the mother hands the child to the father, the, the lab notes will say, I mean, they're very copious to that point. And at that point, they'll say, baby handed to father. And then the experiment is over until the baby, you know, goes to sleep or is handed back to the mother. And the message here is clear, that motherhood is essential when fatherhood isn't. That mothers are needed, fathers are 
extra. Kind of a throw in. If you have a good one, it's icing on the cake. But your mother is who you need. Your father is who you get. (laughs) And you don't need him necessarily in the same way. However, in those infrequent times that they have taken the time to study fathers, the evidence of a father's impact for good or bad is incredibly clear and shocking to some when they finally started studying dads. They realize that dads have an impact from the day a child is born, even before the child is born. In the womb, a father's voice has an impact on his child. They have studied some two-parent homes where um, more often than not, dads are every bit as engaged as moms are. And it surprised people to hear that dads spent every bit as much time engaged with baby as mom did. Now, moms um, often will hold the child more uh, for more, uh, you know, part of the day, but, but the dads play with the child more. And the holding disparity has more to do with feeding than with anything else we can find. So most dads engage their babies as much as moms do, and while moms hold the baby more, dads play with the baby more. Moms play too, but not like dads. <laughs> There is something truly special and formative about a child, a young baby's experience playing with dad. As one scientist say, said, a, a father's play, the roughhousing kind of physical, visceral play, introduces very important themes early in life, in the life of a child. Themes like danger <laughs> and risk and problem-solving which sound funny but are incredibly important to a child's development. And without a father's roughhousing, a child misses something, oftentimes, as is the case with an absent father or a father who's guilty of dereliction of his duty, a mother plays both roles. And that's all right, too. That can work. Um, But a father plays an important role um, from childhood, from infancy, Good fathers have an immeasurable impact beyond infancy and beyond the toddler years as well. And the science here is undeniable. Kids with stable, present, steady fathers have been shown to have much higher levels of self-control, confidence, and sociability. Kids with engaged fathers are far less likely to engage in risky behaviors as adolescents. They're far less likely to have behavioral or psychological problems throughout their lives. Kids with stable involved fathers do better typically on cognitive tests and get better grades typically. They are more likely to become young adults with higher levels of academic and economic achievement, career success, occupational competency, and psychological well-being. Now this is not to say that every person that has a good father is all of those things or that every person who didn't is none of those things. That's not how it works. We're just looking at a large sampling of people and the effects that good fathers have um, on their kids uh, over a lifetime. Now, unfortunately, you wouldn't think that fathers have such a positive impact and play such a vital role in the lives of their kids by the way that fathers are portrayed in popular culture as compared to mothers. 
I've got to say that if fathers were portrayed the same way on television as uh, if, if mothers were portrayed the same way as fathers are, um, there would be a complete and total uproar. Like CNN would be all over it if mothers were portrayed in, with such buffoonery as clowns. And if fathers were as dominant over the family as mothers are on sitcoms, um, by and large, I think there would be a social uproar. I can't watch TV for very long without coming across another clown dad whose kids are smarter than him, whose wife treats him like he's just another one of her kids to keep up with, who is um, the class clown of the family. Obviously, uh, Homer Simpson is the prime example, but the trope is everywhere. Dads in everything from the Flintstones to Peppa Pig, parents, holla if you hear me, Peppa Pig, where his kids constantly call him fatty uh, and have no respect for their father, to things like King of Queens and everyone loves, everybody loves Raymond. These fathers are buffoons whose wives obviously run the show. And if you're a TV snob and all you watch is uh, public television and you Downton Abbey fans and you're above all this Homer Simpson stuff, don't get too carried away because Lord Grantham also from Downton Abbey, total buffoon, total clown. He totally wasted the family fortune, can't even get himself dressed in the morning without another grown man to help him in the room. So you TV snobs, you don't get off. <laughs> so easy. Uh, the way dads are represented in culture is often insulting. There are other assumptions in this commercial, like uh, fathers aren't usually involved, like mothers are. Dads can't change diapers, which is total, I don't want to say the two letters I'm about to say. Uh, it's a lie. <laughs> um, because I, as a dad, I changed about as many diapers as as. My wife did. It's the mother of my kids did. I changed them better than she did. I'm faster. And <laughs> I swaddle with the best of them, you know, and uh, the butt paste, all of it. If you're not a dad, you'll see one day. Um, and I, I was great at it. And, uh, and, and so uh, for these assumptions to just be put out there, like dads aren't involved and dads are helpless without moms around and moms are basically single parents who put up with dads, and once in a while, dads will give mom a break. You know, that kind of stuff. It just, I know I, I'm not easily offended, but I, I'm offended by this um, because of, uh, of, of how, how off this really is in my experience. Maybe some of you have different experience, but in my experience, it's off. Now, uh, every time I preach about something like this, about men and masculinity, I get pushback. I get emails. Because people think I'm just another conservative Christian guy, just mansplaining how the world ought to work. And if we could just go back to the good old days, you know, that I get emails about, you know, how I want to make America great again. I actually got an email last time I said that the world was better when men prayed more. Somebody said, you just want to make America great again, you Trump voter or whatever. I was like, Trump voter? I mean, I've been called a lot of things. Um, uh, Trump voter is right up there with Yankee. My grandma called me a Yankee once when I moved to Kansas City. And um, uh, it, was, it was hard to take. Missouri's in the south, I told her. She said, it ain't Texas, you Yankee. So anyway, I digress. Uh, but listen, uh, I, I'm not saying that a two-parent traditional household is the only way to raise great kids. It's quite possible. 
to raise the greatest kids. As a single parent, single mother or single father, in the context of divorce, non-traditional families can raise amazing kids. Two of the last four presidents were raised by single mothers. and They barely knew their fathers, if at all. And so all I'm saying with this series is that dads matter. Statistically, dads make a massive difference, and we should revere and respect fatherhood as much as we do motherhood. Now, that's the first reason for this series. The second reason is that um, simply the Bible lifts up God as a father. It's one of the most common um, designations for God in the Bible, Old Testament and New. In the Old Testament, the psalmist says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And Paul in the New Testament says that God is a father as well. We have that one. There it is from Ephesians 4, 6. One God and one father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus' favorite name for God was Father. Actually, it wasn't even the formal father. It was, it was more like dad or daddy. There was an intimacy there with, um, with Jesus and his heavenly father. And so um, this is another reason for us to uh, look at the fatherhood of God. I think by looking at the, the paternal qualities of God, we can learn more about his nature. And in our relationship with him, by learning more about him, we grow closer to him. And we know what to expect from him. One of the best examples of the fatherhood of God is in a story Jesus tells, probably the most uh, famous of his stories, the story that we've come to call the prodigal uh, son, the parable of the prodigal son from Luke 15. For three weeks, we're going to look at this story. We're going to break it down one part at a time. Uh, this is going to be act one of the great uh, story we call uh, the parable of the prodigal son. It's on your study guides if you'd like to follow along there, or it'll be on the screens as well, or obviously you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. I know we think the main character in this story is the son who is lost, but it's not. We've named this story the prodigal son. We shouldn't have. It's a terrible title for a great story. Like most good stories, the very first character we're introduced to is the protagonist, is the main character. And the first story that we're, the first character we're introduced to in this story is the father. There was a man, Jesus said. There was a man who had two sons. And from context clues, there are a few things we can, we can know about him. We know that he was a landed man, a landowner, which put him in the top 0.1% of society then. He was a wealthy man. He had many, many resources compared to other men of his time and place. He was uh, a farm owner, a ranch owner, a vineyard owner of some kind, and he probably employed the whole town. Hundreds of people probably lived off of him, off of his land, and because of his benevolence as employer. Um, and so uh, we also know that he had two sons. He was a father, that he had to feed his own family as well as look out 
for others. We know that he was a CEO, a busy man, we imagine. We know that his younger son, he has two, and the younger son comes to him with this unthinkable outlandish request and says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance. Give me my share of the estate, he says. Um, This is probably lost on us uh, because uh, we don't know the context um, that well about uh, what wealth was back then. Wealth was not liquid assets back then. This man, this father was a wealthy man, but he didn't have cash on hand. All of his wealth was tied up in real estate. This land that he didn't acquire, he inherited from his father. And his father inherited it from his father. This land, the way it worked back then was that land was connected to family. So land was all about your identity. Your land was your pride. It was your jewel. It was your treasure. Your land was everything. This land probably bore the name of this man's ancestors, forefathers. And so when the second son, the younger son, comes and asks for his inheritance, there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, he's entitled to one-third of this man's wealth, one-third of his father's land. He's entitled to one-third of the family farm. The older son is entitled to the other two-thirds. But he's entitled to one-third. But when he asks for his inheritance, for what is his, he's not asking for one-third of the land. He's asking for what one-third of the land is worth. He clearly doesn't want the land to work it on his own. He wants the money, which (laughs) is incredibly shameful to ask your father to do, especially in that context, to ask your father to break up the family farm, to fracture the identity of his family name, to put his very pride, his reputation up on the auction block so that he can have a little cash in his pocket to run away with. And not only that was happening, but in addition to that, an inheritance was the same thing then as it is today, which is something that is given upon your death. You give an inheritance to the next generation when you die. And the same was true then. He was entitled to one-third of his father's land, but only after his father was dead. So by coming to his father and saying, give me my share of the inheritance, he's saying, Dad, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. You don't matter to me. I want your stuff. I want your money. But I don't want you. Dad, I wish you were dead. Now let me go. Now, if you can hear this story as Jesus is telling it through the ears of his first century Judean listeners, you might understand why all of them at this point in the story would have been shaking their heads and grumbling. Because everybody's got a younger son in their family. Everybody's got that ungrateful, immature, sort of black sheep in their family that stands out and does their own thing, doesn't have respect for the family's heritage. So they're all thinking about Cousin Eddie or whatever, (laughs) whoever's coming to mind. And, And 
what this younger son has asked of his father is so egregious that all of this, all of his listeners would have expected Jesus' next move to be that the father then punished or cut off the younger son because it was well within his right to do so. After such a dishonorable act, such a shameful act by his son to act as though his dad was dead to him. Everyone would have expected this first century Middle Eastern Palestinian patriarch to lash out, to beat his son, to have his son beaten, to even kill his son. No one would have thought twice about it. He wouldn't have faced any consequences for doing that. Everyone would have said the son deserved it. It was well within his rights to do so. He had the power to do so. But what does this father do? This is the shocking part of the first act in this story. The father doesn't control the son. He doesn't punish the son. He doesn't try to manipulate or micromanage the son. The father lets the son go. The father puts a third of his family land up for sale on the auction block. He sells it to his shame, to his discredit. He sells it, sacrificing his own good name, answering everyone's questions, seeing everyone else's snide looks and remarks he sells it and he gives his son the money and he lets his son go why why does the father let the son go the only answer that makes sense in context is love he lets the son go because that's what a father's love does a father's love Let's go without pushing his kids away. A father's love lets his kids wonder, lets his kids abuse him, even, lets his kids do their own thing, figure out their own problems, walk their own path without trying to control or manipulate them, without pushing them away. That's a father's love. Second Peter says, love covers all manner of sins. That's a father's love. I get calls, Gio and I, we get calls and emails all the time from desperate fathers and desperate mothers who will call us or email us. Some of you who are 35 and under, we probably got to know you via some call uh, from your concerned parent about how you were wandering, uh, lost, aimless in the world. And uh, a lot of these parents, they will call us, parents of grown children or teenagers will call us saying, my son, he doesn't want anything to do with God. My daughter says she's an atheist. My son is living with a Wiccan girl or whatever, you know, my, my daughter is, uh, that, that's a true story, by the way. And my daughter, my daughter doesn't want to go to church. And I've invited her every week to go to church. And one time, two years ago, she finally went to church with me and she fell asleep. She said it was boring and she'll never go back. And I keep inviting her. And Pastor Eric, we just don't know what to do. We've tried everything. Every time we see him, we invite him to church. Every time we talk to her, we tell her that we didn't raise her this way, that we're disappointed, that we expected more from her. And then they'll say something like, 
Every time I see your messages online, Eric, we send my son a link to your sermons. And that's when I stop him and I say, could you just leave me out of it? Could you just... Could you just leave me and the story out of your crazy? Just, just leave us out of it. Um, as much as I appreciate parents who worry, sometimes parents don't realize that by pushing so specifically in one direction, they're achieving the opposite end. And they don't realize that the more they tell their kids about the story or about Pastor Eric or Gio or, or about church, the less likely it is that their kids will actually end up here. And so I usually just have a little side conversation with the concerned parents parents and say, could you just stop with the invitations? Could you stop with the constant pressure? Could you stop sending them links of my sermons that you just know they'll love? They're not listening to the sermons. Instead, could you just send us their name? Maybe send us their email address. We'll accidentally invite them to a wine tasting event or something that the story's doing, and we'll get them here. As long as you stop pushing them away from here, we'll get them here. Don't worry. They're the perfect target for what we're trying to, to do here. But sometimes the anxiety, the disappointment that parents exude, it pushes kids further away from the desired uh, end point. No, I'm only kidding about, uh, about, you know, parents being crazy, sort of kidding. But, um, but we do have to stop. Fathers, we have to stop with the guilt trips, especially to our adolescent and grown children. We have to stop with the guilt trips and the constant pressures and the constant reminders of all that they are not. In light of our hopes and our expectations, all that they are not, all the ways that they are not living up to what we Expect it. We have to stop making them feel like they, we won't be proud of them until they do whatever. I think it's as easy as taking a page out of the father's playbook in the story Jesus tells. Prodigal son is the title. As I said before, it really is a bad title. It should be the prodigal father. The word prodigal is a word that means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully, extravagant. And it refers to the younger son's free wheeling and spending on loose living after he left his father's home. And I get that. But the true prodigal in the story is not the son, it's the father. It's the father who puts the family farm up for sale. It's the father who put the family name on the auction block. It's the father who had the power to control and manipulate and micromanage and punish his son, but instead let him go with a third of the family estate. It's the father who's the prodigal. That's reckless. It's irresponsible in everyone's eyes. That's a little much, but that is the essence of love. He loves his son so much that he's willing to let go of the farm, of his name, of the land, his reputation, even of his own son. He has the power to control his son, but he doesn't. He has the power to manipulate his son, but he doesn't. He could punish his son, but he doesn't. He lets him go without pushing him away. He lets him go, and then he waits. He says, okay, son, go Take a third of what I have and, and go. And, and then he waits quietly, patiently. He waits for his son to come home. Being a good dad is really hard. But it's also simple. 
You know, sometimes things can be hard but simple. Being a good dad is as simple as making sure your daughter and your son grow up knowing two things, hearing two things from you as a father. First, they need to know and hear from you that you love them. And second, they need to know and hear from you that you're proud of them. I love you, and I am proud of you. Isn't that what we've all been trying to do for as long as we can remember? Is hear our fathers and or our mothers say that they're proud of us? To know that they love us? But too often fathers are unhealthy or insecure in their own right. Fathers had bad fathers sometimes. And they force their kids to earn their love. Or they just withhold their pride out of spite or insecurity or a discomfort with intimacy with their kids. They withhold it. They control. They manipulate. They squeeze. All a child needs to know from her father is... He's proud of her. All the son needs to know from his dad is he loves him. How sad is it to see someone who didn't grow up with a father with that love, with that assurance, that pride, grow up into adolescence and adulthood grasping at every straw she can to get that affirmation from anywhere else. That affirmation she was lacking, that dad-shaped hole in her heart, filling it with whatever else she can. Dads have a hard job, but a simple one. And every child needs to know that their father loves them and is proud of them. And that that love, that pride is unconditional. It's not, it's not tied to achievement. It's, you don't love your daughter because she graduated. You love her because she's your daughter. You're not proud of your son because he hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth. I mean, that'd be awesome, Cohen, if you're listening. But the... You love him because he's your son, because he's yours. And what a wonderful power that is. What a wonderful responsibility that is. And what a shameful sin that is when fathers are guilty of neglecting their duty. See, anytime Jesus tells a story about a father, he's teaching us about God and about ourselves. God is almost always the father in the stories Jesus tells. He's telling us that the way this father is in the story is the way this God is toward us. God has the power within his grasp to control you. He has the ability to coerce you, to manipulate you, to micromanage you. He could make every little decision of your life for you if he wanted to. He has the right to do with you whatever he wants to. He created you. You are his. He has that power, but he doesn't use it. And this is a concept I love, a theological concept called the self-restraint of God. He could make every decision for us. He could answer every single prayer request, yes, or every single prayer request, no. He could make life very simple for us, just make us robots. We just do whatever he wants, his will, our command. But he is self-restrained. He is self-controlled. 
because he is committed to the concepts of love. He refuses to make every decision for us and to micromanage you. He is willing, even when you live as though he is dead to you, even when you live in disobedience, dishonoring him, he is willing to let you go without pushing you away, without cutting you off or punishing you forever. He lets you go and then he waits. He lets you leave with whatever you're taking with you, with whatever part of him you're leaving with, with whatever blessings he's given you. And he lets you go. And he waits and he waits and he waits for your homecoming. For you, his daughter, to return. For you, his son, to come home because he loves you. Because he's proud of you. When Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3, he heard a voice from heaven and he knew the voice. It was his father's voice. And the father's voice in Matthew 3 said, This is my son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. I love you. I'm proud of you. Jesus says this is how our Father is with all of us. He loves us, he's proud of us, but he lets us go. And when we go, he bears the burden, he pays the price, and he waits. Because that's what good dads do. If you're a father... Or if you're about to be a father, congratulations, fasten your seatbelt. Or if one day you hope to be a father. Or if you're a man whose kids are no longer at home or whose kids are in heaven. Or if you're a man who's never had kids and might never have kids. But God might be calling you to be a father figure to some children or some child that doesn't have a father present. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. This is the end of the sermon, I promise. Which is good, because it's late. Listen, if you play your cards right, dads, you will become the most powerful man in the world. At least in the eyes of your kids. You will become the most powerful voice that they ever hear. And they will be waiting on pins and needles for a sign of your affirmation, for a sign of your unconditional love. They'll be waiting to know that you are proud of them. And you will have that power. And you will have the ability to decide how to use it. And you, like some dads, may be tempted to control your kids or manipulate or coerce them. Or, like our Heavenly Father, you might choose to love them and trust them and trust God with them. And even when they treat you like you're worthless to them, you let them go. Mercifully waiting for them to come back. Without pushing them away, you let them go. And you wait. No, that's what good dads do. Good fathers hope. They wait. Why is that a good father? Why is that what a good father does? Because that's how 
we're wired. Good dads, fathers, you're made in the image of our Heavenly Father. You come by it honestly. You have that instinct within you, even if your father was an impediment to that. Even if you didn't have a dad who told you he loved you unconditionally, was proud of you, you have that in you. Your DNA says that you are a good father made in the image of our heavenly father. And you love unconditionally. Now, if you have to this point failed as a father, if you're guilty of dereliction of duty, if your kids do not know that you love them unconditionally and that you're proud of them unconditionally, if you have tried over the years to control or manipulate your kids instead of loving, forgiving them, letting them go, all I will say to you today is the ball is in your court, not theirs. It's on you to repent. Repent. You hold all the cards, dads. Repent of that sin before it's too late. And if your dad never made you feel loved, if Father's Day is not something you look forward to, if you just want to leave this place right now because we're talking about good dads and you've never known one, I just want to tell you that the only father you'll ever need is and has always been deeply in love with you and deeply proud of you. Not because of what you've accomplished with your life. Not because of where you spend your Sunday mornings. But because you're his. He loves you. He looks at you with that same look you see good fathers looking at their kids with. And he loves you for who you are. And he is the only father you'll need. Just ask him for the strength to forgive your earthly father. To let that pain go and be healed. And when you pray, call God your father and get in that habit. Because he is your father, our father, the only father that we need. Well, let's pray. God, thank you for your love, for your assurance. We are yours and you're proud of us and you love us no matter what. We love you, even though we haven't always lived as such. I pray for those who are on the verge of making some decision to come home to you after you've let them wander and go their own path. I pray that they would have the courage to take the next step toward you to receive your embrace. In Jesus' name.